show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buzzy, Leary. Um, what are we surfing today? Well, it's uh, exactly a week before Christmas, so... Are we drinking anything other than mulled wine? Uh, well, I am. <laughs> you two oh, are drinking okay. mulled wine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking mulled wine, yeah. <laughs> I was going to drink um, a glass of the nice non-dairy Baileys option that you bought me in the last episode. Oh, yes. Um, as that would have been more on track to the actual theme of this episode. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but no, it's a week until Christmas. I'm basically marinating myself in mulled wine. Very nice. Well, I <laughs> wanted to be inspired by the theme, which you have, as yet yeah, not mentioned, obviously, um, <laughs> which is <laughs> I've got uh, I've got a beer. I've got a can of beer, Session IPA by Northern Monk, um, and it's ironically titled Eternal. Ah, <laughs> you get it? I see. Yeah, I do. We still haven't said what the theme is. No, I'm waiting for you. That's, that's supposed to be your job, but it always <laughs> takes a bit of coaxing. The uh, the reason I was going to drink a Bailey's is because that's what I always end my night with when it's last orders, which is the theme of the episode. Last orders, which I think yes. we've um, we've pushed to the limits of interpretation um, in this episode. So let's see how we mm-hmm. roll with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I'd I'd start with it being quite straightforward in terms of looking at a few things about opening hours, about when last orders are have been how they might have changed how they differ yep. the okay. the first kind of big um piece of documentation i can find about when um serving hours are is the beer house act of 1840 which required public houses to close at midnight in towns and 11 p.m in rural areas uh, but also enabled local authorities to decide on shorter opening hours if they so desired I always thought it was quite funny, actually, that opening hours are later in the city. Like, on, on one side, it makes sense because, you know, there's there's more people or whatever. But on the other hand, you're much more likely to be lots of people living next to pubs and stuff and it to be disturbing as opposed to in rural areas where generally you're kind of further away from a pub and people have lock-ins anyway. <laughs> so I don't know what the logic behind that is. So before the outbreak of the First World War, normal opening hours were 6am to 11pm, Monday to Saturday. Um, Who was going at 6am? Well, I'll get to that later on, um, actually, (laughs) because there were people. Um, And 6am to 10pm in country districts. Then when the First World War turned up, that's when we get the first sort of real signs of people being a bit concerned. Uh, about opening hours. Uh, Lloyd George suggested that drink is doing us more damage in the war than all the German submarines put together. Oh, calm down. Yeah, I think that's a bit of hyperbole (laughs) from Lloyd George there and he needs to just calm his tits. Uh, The Defence of the Real Act and the Temporary Restrictions Act enabled local authorities to reduce opening hours. The Chief Constable of Cardiganshire 
recommended that alcohol could be purchased only between 10am and 10pm in Aberystwyth. Do you know why it was kind of focused on Aberystwyth? Because we can't be trusted. I mean, you absolutely cannot be trusted. But it was also <laughs> because that's that's where a lot of soldiers were trained during the First World War. Um, and so it was specifically they were trying to crack down on the number of hours soldiers could drink. Although, you know, 12 hours is still not bad, is it? Um, in February <laughs> 1916, the Government Control Board, uh, which had powers over much of England and whole of Wales, reduced opening hours in pubs and clubs to 12 to 2.30 and 6 to 9pm. Um, or 6.30 to 9.30, Mondays to Saturdays. And then it was only six to nine on Sundays. Uh, in March 1919, evening hours were extended. Um, so if you were in a hotel, um, then you could get alcohol with a meal until 11pm. In July 1920, Sunday hours were extended in summertime to allow them to be seven till 10pm. And then soon that, that was applied to the whole year. But it was still quite restricted. It still had to be shut in the afternoon. Then the Licensing Act of 1921 extended opening hours again. 11.33 and 5.30 to 10 Monday to Saturday. And a bit different on Sunday, but still only five hours on Sunday you were allowed to be open for. And these hours were enforced until um, local licensing committees were kind of allowed to extend them. By the late 1980s, pubs were allowed to sell alcohol at any time between 11 and 11. And the Licensing Act of 2003 which is kind of the most recent one, I think, uh, but it, it only came into force in November 2005. That enabled pubs to apply for licences to be up to 24 hours a day. I remember that. I remember that coming into to pass because it was just post-university and it seemed like a very exciting prospect. It was like, oh, pubs are <laughs> going to be open all the time. No more sort of contending with everyone surging out at 11pm. But it didn't really happen. Everything just kind of stayed more or less the same uh, for yeah. a lot of occasions. I felt they didn't, we didn't, as a country, really embrace the 24-hour <laughs> or, or particularly late licence opening, I don't think. Do you remember? Yeah, I think, obviously, this was before I'd moved to London. So I was still in deep, dark rural Wales where lock-ins were a common thing. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it made absolutely no difference to us. <laughs> This is what I mean by that sort of weird difference between giving cities later licences by about an hour than rural, when actually the mm -hmm. reality is that you tend to get kicked out quite sharply when you're in towns and cities, but in rural, they just have a large lock-ins anyway. <laughs> exactly. That you, you don't get kicked out. You just keep going and then you're like, oh shit, it's, the sun's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what the official drinking up time is? Once you've called time, let's say it's 11pm, the pub has said no more drinks to be sold after 11pm. Do you know how long you have to drink up? Oh, I feel like if I was on QI, the, the alarm would go off, but I'm going to say 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, uh, that that's quite a generous allowance um it's most commonly thought of as being 20 minutes um in england and wales but as of the 2003 licensing act there is no legally defined drinking up time in england and wales it is officially 15 minutes in scotland um of course it is they could just chin it <laughs> <laughs> 
it's like, well but this is the thing it depends on what pub you're going to right because you can go into pubs and legally they could sell you a pint at 11 59 or you know 10 59 p.m saying no mm. more pints at 11 and chuck you out immediately i feel like i've had that happen to me yes i have definitely been to a pub before where they called time at the bar and then immediately handed out plastic cups and sent people onto the street and i really dislike that for many reasons yeah don't like it but you also can in theory stock up on the pints just before they call time and then sit there and drink them for an hour if the pub lets you there's no law against it so mm. it's um it's a rather sort of confusing and variously applied uh, rule since 2003 but most people so seem to think when... of it as 20 minutes when we eventually inevitably open our pub mm. what are we gonna do depends on our mood <laughs> depends on our our whims i think mine i think mine is just yeah it's 24 hours <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so um you asked about in the morning you know at 6 a.m who's going at 6 a.m yeah Unless it's, you're still there from 12 to 6. It's, Nobody's getting up to go at 6. Well, it's so it's much less common now, but it used to be a more usual thing. Um, if you kind of cast your mind back, you know, really from sort of 18th century backwards, do you remember we have spoken before about how people would um, drink sort of six to eight pints of beer every day? Um mm. They were workers. The, the for women and children who who would drink it, it was quite low alcohol. It was about two percent, but they would have it to keep up their energy. They would have it to hydrate because it was healthier than you know, drinking Thames water, um, and and it was also kind of like it could come as part of their payment. So part of the payment for work, especially if they were farmers, if they were working agriculturally, you'd get beer as part of your work. So it was not uncommon, pre-19th century, I would say, for people to come in and have a pint of beer with their breakfast, you know, maybe something else, and then have one for Eleven's ears, and then have one for lunch, and on it would just go through the day because it was part of their, you know, it was what they would do instead of having water or a cup of tea, or, you know, until that became popular. So you wanted um, these places, these establishments to be open because people were going there for breakfast. So that that's kind of the first thing about it, it being a tradition of uh, starting at 6am. Also, um, workers would receive their wages in pubs as well. So the first factory owners used to use pubs as pay offices, uh, which seems quite weird to us now, but you can also understand why they would go in and immediately have a pint because they're going, here's your money, congratulations. And you'd be like, Do you know what? You keep that one and I'm going to have a pint. <laughs> <laughs> um. So kind of taking taking that practice away of being able to have a pint at any time of the day and it being your responsibility was, was really what happened during the First World War. And it wasn't just, we don't want you to drink because you'll be drunk and distracted. It was also trying to save on grain because, of course, there were rations and they didn't think that was the best use of it. Um, the exception was made for the market pubs which were seen as key to market trading because um, 
you know, they would be there early in the morning setting up their markets. I mean, they, they still do, you know, they'll get there at sort of 3 a.m. to set up and they sell all the wares in the morning and then they're done by sort of six or seven. And so after their day of work, they would want to go and have a pint, you know, to calm down, disappear, go off, do something else. But also buying and selling was still happening there until relatively recently. So they would go in there and make trades and deal and, and, and drink on it to seal it. So that's why the remaining early houses that you find uh, in London and other places are still able to keep their doors open from 6am because of the tradition of them being historic market pubs. Uh, you, you see fewer market workers in them anymore. It tends to be night shift workers who are, you know, finishing their day and coming in for a pint after work. So the morning drinkers uh, in this country usually have come off a, a night shift. It's quite frowned upon, <laughs> I think, in this country still. Um, if you walk past and you see someone, you know, having a beer at the early hours. But it's completely normal if you go to places like Germany or Czechia. Breakfast beer is, is no one's bothered by it. It's still quite a traditional and normal thing. So it's it's a prudishness that we developed following the First World War and government advice to sort of save grain and other things. Uh, the the traditional historic market pub example that I have in mind in London is just down the road from me. It's the Market Porter in Borough Market that opens at 6 a.m. Uh, so it's open from six till nine for the early morning drinkers. Then it closes for two hours and then it's open again from 11 till 11. But you can go in for a cheeky morning beverage, which we have never done. I know. I when I when I was kind of thinking about this and writing down notes on the market porter, I thought I can't believe we've never done that. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. <laughs> <laughs> next time, next time, let's pop in for a well, quick one. Then... this is forming a whole new New Year's resolution for me. <laughs> <laughs> drink, drink more and earlier. <laughs> yeah, be less prudish. Drink at six a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's learn from the Germans, please. Um, another early morning pub that I have been to, uh, which comes to mind, sadly, it's no longer in existence. It closed in 2011. But for many years, when I was up at the Edinburgh Fringe, there was an infamous pub called Penny Black. Um, and it's called Penny Black because originally it served the nearby railway and postal workers who were finishing their night shifts. Um, and it's also quite a a small pub so it suits the idea of it being postage stamp uh, size but yeah it would open from six till noon and not only <laughs> here's the thing about the penny black yes it was kind of serving those night shift workers but it's not like the market porter where it's on the edge of the market and people are just having like you know a drink or two and doing some business deals you'd go into this place and karaoke would be in full whack <laughs> at like 7 a.m <laughs> <laughs> oh my god it was it was like a dream an infamous um experience particularly during the fringe because you know you would you would perform you'd see shows you'd um stay in their bars generally they would be open to about three or four or something uh one of them i remember was open till five and then you'd go and get some food and then you'd go to the penny black at six for like one last one before you went home <laughs> this sounds like heaven <laughs> It was really fun. Unfortunately, it, yeah, it closed in 2011, but um, it was it was a wild ride while it existed. Mm. Have you any um, sort of early morning pubs that you're aware of? Uh, oh, funnily enough, I was in Chester this time last week and I had to be in a meeting quite early, but I was just kidding some time walking around Chester, like between 
8, 9 a.m. <clears throat> and most of the shops were shut. I was hoping to just have a wander around the shops, but they weren't open till 9. The only place that I could find open was the Weatherspoons, and there were lots of people in there drinking. And I'm just going to go out on a whim and say that they weren't night shift workers. <laughs> <laughs> no. I feel like rather than take up the mantle of historic market pubs, Weatherspoons is more like the sort of... Um, outside of time environment you get in airports it's more like that mm -hmm. yeah time has no meaning in airports doesn't yeah. matter what time you're there you have a pint yeah um i, do, I don't know of any around here really i i'm always in bed at that time i don't know <laughs> <laughs> um a few things from other countries then i thought this uh the australian new zealand thing was interesting because uh they have something called well they had something called six o'clock swill uh, which was their slang term for the last minute rush to buy drinks at a hotel bar before it closed. For a large part of the 20th century, most Australian and New Zealand hotels shut their public bars at 6pm. Um, mm. It was to try and avoid heavy drinking. Um, it, but what it did is it just shifted the time of heavy drinking. <laughs> so people would finish mm. work at 5 and they would rush to the pubs before the mandatory uh, closing time. This was introduced again during the First World War, so pretty much following on from us, but even more stern. Um, it was this measure of kind of public morality and austerity. Um, it was it was kind of under pressure from the temperance movement as well, not just the government. They hoped that by Im uh, implementing these restrictions, people would get used to not drinking so much and then push for total prohibition. Uh, but it, it really didn't go down so well. So instead, you just got these like high intensity, hour long speed drinking sessions as people rushed to get as drunk as possible in the limited time they had. Um, one of the <laughs> one of the adaptations uh, they came up with as a result of this was that people would um, save their glasses during the hour before closing time, before last call came in, and then the glasses would be refilled um, just before time ran out and the way they did that was instead of like all queuing at the bar or the barman having to like bring uh, glasses over they basically did an extended like hose tap and the barman <laughs> would just go around and refill kind of like you know you can get coke out what they do with coke he would yeah. go around and just like fill all the glasses up um with taps which i think should probably still exist that sounds like a great workaround <laughs> they do it in um they do it in some events. I've seen like, I don't know, like Carlin or Heineken or one of the beer companies. They have people walking around with like giant, like backpacks on. Yeah, so they, they sort of do that at festivals guns. still, yeah. don't they? But yeah, this was like a last minute, last call rush. They also, <laughs> it, it changed the um, the architecture as well, really, because to accommodate kind of more of these speed drinkers, they made their bars longer and they tiled the walls for easy cleaning because presumably it was getting messier with all the frantic drinking. Um, mm. And they converted like billiard rooms and saloon bars. Um, they they sort of disappeared to just kind of put these bar counters in. So it, it changed the architecture and their approach to binge drinking. You find this a lot, I feel, like in all sorts of areas when people try to impose restrictions to encourage temperance, it usually just has the opposite effect and makes people go harder and faster. <laughs> um, so yeah, it didn't, it didn't have any success. It didn't reduce alcohol consumption and it, it contributed to the growth of sly grog 
venues they were called, which was illicitly traded alcohol. Um, and then people would just go to bottle shops and sort of illegally buy stuff and take it home. <laughs> uh, much better are the countries that have no legally mandated last call. Um, and there's quite a lot of them. You know, we sort of we, we feel like we have this reputation for being, um, you know, good drinkers and all this sort of stuff. But actually, you know, there's plenty of countries that are much more kind of chilled out and relaxed about how you want to do it. Belgium, probably my favourite <laughs> to be doing that. Uh, many bars will stay open all night. But also China, Japan, Brazil, Turkey, Germany. Um, there's lots of places that don't have mandated uh, closing hours. Actually, Germany, they, they do in the beer gardens for noise reasons. It'll be like 11 or midnight um, when the beer gardens close, but inside, not at all. As I discovered when I went there recently and we asked, <laughs> what time do you close? And they went, oh, I don't know, maybe about eight or nine. And we were like, a.m. <laughs> God, yep. what time did you stay there till? I'm not saying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Greece as well, uh, they can stay open as late as they uh, want to. Usually the cafeteria stay open until 11pm, bars until 2 and clubs until the early morning. But there is uh, no last call. Um, in 1994, the Minister for Public Order did pass a law saying that all bars had to be closed at 2am, but it was so unpopular it never actually came into being and then they just abolished it a few years later. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Finland bars are allowed to serve drinks until 1.30 a.m., uh, but in the provinces they can grant extensions up to 4 a.m. if they want to. Um, it's usually based on, you know, what they perceive as the quality of the establishment. So, you know, does it have entertainment? Does it have a coat check? Um, do they have a, um, a DJ or live music? Is it clean? Things like that. So it, it's funny, in their kind of in their world you can't have like these late night dingy bars which is yeah, dive kind of, bars. yeah what i associate with That's late night these dive be, bars yeah. is, is the opposite for them um <laughs> but yeah they there's no um last call as such not well they don't use those words but they do flash the lights <laughs> so if they're in a nightclub they dim them and if you're in a dark place they flash the lights so in finnish they call it uh valor murky which means light signal which is their version of kind of last call, last orders. In Sweden, um, explicit last calls do not take place because it would violate a political principle not to encourage people to drink more. They can't afford to drink more in Sweden, so... it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> they also can't afford it. But yeah, but that's their thinking. They think if they tell people this is your last chance, then they're going to drink more, which, as we have discovered from Australia and New Zealand, is true. So they're quite right. So there's no explicit last calls, um, but they do have closing times. So, you know, I suppose it's sort of just be aware of it if you're there. Uh, the standard latest time is 1am, but uh, it can be it can be allowed later as long as you have security and staff that have been educated in how to serve alcohol responsibly. That's their trade off. Um, I believe you want to I, I mentioned that uh, China has no uh, no rules around it, but I believe you've got something that you wanted to talk to me about China. China? Uh, yeah. So, uh, mine's all to do with death. Yay! <laughs> Yay! So, yeah, essentially what happens with regards to funerals, wakes, honouring the dead, etc, etc. Um, but I thought China had some quite interesting 
views on it. So, any would you like to hazard a guess as to what kind of choice of drink they like to imbibe around that time? Death time. And death time. Well, in modern times, it seems to be that like red wine is their focus for everything because it means good luck. But I don't know if it's disrespectful to wish them to be like, good luck, you're dead. <laughs> it's not red wine. Okay. Um, it's tea. Well, of course. Um, as with many cultures in China, uh, tea is often offered to guests who come to pay their respects to the recently deceased. Uh, tea, like in lots of other important occasions, it becomes a vehicle for social interaction and a platform for social exchange. Um, so more specifically, close relatives during the morning period often have to abstain uh, in Chinese culture from certain foods. Uh, so it's also arguable that the tea sustains the relatives through these times as well. Um, in more modern time, the role of the undertakers become more of a commercial enterprise in Chinese culture, uh, especially in more developed cities and areas. Often the undertaker will be seen at funerals surrounded by piles of gifts, almost like Santa, um, and he hands gifts out to the mourners attending the ceremony. Uh, more often than not, these parcels are gifts of tea, uh, and they are to be expected in these funerals. Um, there's also been some revival of the ritual of the restless ghost, a yearly event for relieving the restless and deceased familiar spirits. Uh, so one description of how this is performed is quite similar to the Day of the Dead um, celebrations, which I think we have covered in mm -hmm. a previous episode. Uh, so that's when a table and chair is set out for the deceased restless spirit. Um, similar to this one, the restless ghost, um, tea is served regularly throughout the day to the table and the server is expected to wail and cry for the deceased spirit. Um, similarly, it's become tradition after a recent death of a relative to try and calculate, according to belief, a day that they think the spirit will come and return home to visit the surviving relatives for the last time. And when they determine one, when that day is, um, they'll create a meal. It includes three bowls of rice, three bowls of wine, and three bowls of tea. And they're all prepared for that returning spirit. One thing I really liked around the tea um, aspect is that it's a really big part of kind of passing life in China. But... Um, End-of-life care is often extended to, to family members accompanying the person who is unwell. Um, and it's very, very often that they'll be served tea, all of them. Um, it's seen as a ritual to bind the, bind the collective grief and the anxieties of loved ones. So it's probably very familiar for British people, you know. Tea solves everything. If you're having a bad day, have a cup of tea. Uh -huh. If you ever want to call in, if you want to, if you want a cup of tea, it's always something that we kind of have that feeling for. And yeah, it's something that's a big part of Chinese culture at the end of life. They'll all have a cup of tea, family members together. But on that note, <laughs> not just tea in China, I am going to talk about beer as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, at a 9,000-year-old burial site in China, archaeologists recently, I say recently, 2021, so two years ago, two years ago, archaeologists unearthed a number of ceramic vessels that were shaped like the long-necked, round-bellied bronze pots that people used for alcoholic drinks millennia later. 
So that caught the attention of an anthropologist at Dartmouth College. His name was Jia Jing Wang. Uh, he and his colleagues started to wonder whether these clay, like earlier versions, might once have held beer as well. Uh, so bits of the residue left inside the eight inside eight of the thirteen pots that they'd found. Um, they contained fossilized plant remains from rice tubers and a plant called Job's Tears. Starch molecules in the residue also showed signs of being heated and fermented. They also found yeast and mould, key ingredients of fermentation. He says, Mr Wang, Our results revealed that the pottery vessels were used to hold beer in the most general sense, a fermented beverage made of rice, a grain called Job's Tears, and an unidentified tuber. This ancient beer, though, would not have been like the IPA that we have today, Instead, it was slightly a slightly fermented and sweet beverage, which was probably cloudy in colour. This cloudy, sweet rice beer would have been the product of a considerable amount of work. Around 9,000 years ago, people in southern China were just starting to farm rice. The Shangshan culture had seen its people settling in villages, but most of them still relied on hunting and foraging for much of their food. Evidence from other archaeological sites tells us that tubers and acorns were the staples of most people's diets. Rice appears to have been a luxury crop at the time, and rice beer, considering the extra effort and time required to make it, would have been reserved for very special occasions. In this case, somebody buried these drinking vessels in several pottery pits dug into a large burial platform. The platform was the final resting place of at least two people whose skeletons lay nearby, all this indicates the special occasion was probably a funeral or a later ritual to honour the dead. The people who attended the ritual had their rice and tuba beer in vessels befitting the occasion. The ceramics they'd found were finely made and they were decorated with a white slip formed by an outer layer of white clay. A few of them had been painted with abstract patterns of lines and dots, making the vessels the oldest painted pottery that archaeologists know of. Oh. The dried residue of ancient beer that was still stuck to the insides offered a friendly reminder that if you don't wash your dishes, the archaeologists will find it and read you. <laughs> uh, but that's especially true if you're drinking something like an early beer. Prehistoric beers are, or brews are likely akin to a porridge that contains insoluble materials, including starches and other plant additives, so they're not fully digested during the process. These residue materials are useful for identifying alcohol-related artefacts. Uh, so Wang and his colleagues compared the starch molecules that they'd found, along with the fossil plant remains and bits of fungi, to a database of Asian plants and other microbes. And they were able to then link it with ancient brewing techniques to create the findings that they did. The mould in particular... <clears throat> excuse me. The mould in particular offered an important clue about how the Shangshan people made their beer. Traces of mould found in those drinking vessels from, from the reports that they'd produced, they matched two species that helped kickstart the brewing process in modern sake. To turn a grain like barley, rice or wheat into beer, you need some chemistry to happen. We've covered this before, but I'll quickly go through it. Enzymes have to convert starches into grain, into sugars. Then you add yeast into the sugars, into alcohol. You need a bit of carbon dioxide. Um, long story short, you use some mould to kickstart the beer, and that's what they'd found. Um, 
Wang and his team also speculated about how the first mould starters were put to use by humans. He said if people had some leftover rice and the grains became mouldy, they may have noticed that the grains became sweeter and alcoholic with age. While people may not have known the biochemistry associated with the grains that became mouldy, they probably observed the fermentation process and leveraged it through trial and error. He believes that this now could be the world's oldest evidence of people using mould starters to make beer. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. I've been waiting very patiently just to say that I think uh, unidentified tuber should be your drag king name. <laughs> I think yours should just be uh, Juju Wang. <laughs> <laughs> um. I've got some more kind of... I've gone down the death route as well for uh, certain mm -hmm. aspects of this, looking at last drinks. Um, mm -hmm. First of all, I think just is that the most common one from what I've seen of people who are requesting a last drink seems to be champagne. And then everyone's just like, what's the most expensive? What's the most fancy? Let's go for that. I saw so many articles from uh, assisting assisted dying facilities who were like, oh yeah, everyone wants... A, you know a glass of champagne a cigarette and to listen to their favorite song as a as a final request so uh, i barely get through a lot of champagne uh, <laughs> another one another famous one on his uh, deathbed in 1821 while he was in exile napoleon bonaparte um refused any food or drink apart from a glass of van de constance which was not champagne but it is a sweet wine um from from france um, I like Tallulah Bankhead's uh, last requested drink from 1968. She simply requested uh, bourbon and codeine. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> to the point. Thank you, Tallulah. <laughs> there is, there are some cocktails kind of themed after this. Uh, Deathbed cocktail is essentially a gin martini with a dash of absinthe, which I think is more driving you to your deathbed than something you request <laughs> yeah. on your deathbed. I think yeah. that's what they're going for with the naming. Um, there's uh, quite a well-known one called the last, the last Word. And the last word is equal amounts of gin green chartreuse, which if you don't know is like a French herbal one, uh, maraschino liqueur, which is cherry, and fresh, freshly pressed lime juice. And then they're combined in a shaker with ice and then poured through a strainer so that it's there's no ice in it, it's just served straight up. So the first publication of that, the last word, appeared in um, a mixologist called Ted Saucier's book in 1951 in a in a book called Bottoms Up! <laughs> uh, exclamation mark, of course. And in there, he says it was served around 30 years earlier at the Detroit Athletic Club and then later introduced uh, to New York by Frank Fogarty. Uh, but, and since that's the um, the dates that kind of go around Prohibition, 1919 to 33, it's usually considered to be one of those Prohibition-era drinks. But looking at the archives of the Detroit Athletic Club, it um, you can see that the drink's actually slightly older so it's a pre-prohibition drink, in fact, even though people still think of it that way. Uh, because it's listed on the club's menu in 1916, costing 35 cents, which is the equivalent of about uh, $8.20 now. So it was their most expensive cocktail, actually, at the time. Um, Fogarty, Frank Fogarty, who introduced it to New York, um, wasn't a bartender. 
um, himself unusually. Uh, it's usually kind of all stories of, of bartenders looking for new things. He was best known as, well, in those days called a vaudevillian monologist, which is essentially a stand-up comedian. And uh, so some people think that that's what gives the cocktail its name. As in the last word, he was a stand-up comedian, he was talking all the time. He was nicknamed the Dublin Minstrel, uh, and he would always open his performances with uh, a song. Um, in 1912, he won the New York Morning Telegraph contest for the best vaudeville artist. In 1914, he was elected president of the White Rats, which was the vaudeville actors' union. Uh, and around the time that the cocktail was created, uh, we think he was performing at the Temple Theatre in Detroit. So... I've got more about vaudevillians later, actually. Uh, but this cocktail, it kind of fell uh, into oblivion sometime after World War II, and it wasn't really rediscovered until quite recently, 2003, by Murray Stenson. He was looking for a cocktail for a club in Seattle called the Zigzag Cafe, and he found this copy of the 1952 book, uh, Saucier, where he, he cited the recipe. And then it sort of really took off around Seattle and Portland and has begun to spread to other cities. But it's one that was, yeah... Um, created, fell into obscurity and has made a bit of a return. Back to you, more death? Of course, more death. <laughs> <laughs> um, historically, the largest item of expenditure at funerals was actually the food and drink served after the burial itself. <laughs> um, quite often this would account for as much as half of the total funeral cost. Um, and some concerns actually did start to grow from this. Um, in 1618, the Catholic Synod of Armagh expressed deep concern about the effects on the inherent um, inheritances of the provision of excessive luxury in funeral banquets and in mourning dresses. And on the circumstances of those further down the social scale who were copying such expenditure, stating that to moderate this excess, some remedy must anxiously be applied. Writing in 1623, Sir Henry Borgia, the 5th Earl of Bath, grimly stated that three or four hundred horse and double as many on foot sometimes come to feast and riot it out for three or four days together at the charge of the dead or married couple and their friends to their utter undoing for ever. Expensive way to go. <laughs> but P.S. I want a massive party when I die and I do want you to all bankrupt yourselves. <laughs> oh, I will for sure be celebrating. <laughs> That's probably um, not what you meant, is it? <laughs> no, absolutely not. You meant respectfully. Um, respectfully, spend all of your money on expensive champagne and uh -huh. your best outfits. Right. Um, so I looked a lot into all the different rituals and traditional things that were eaten. Um, before I started, I this was a new one on me, you've probably heard of it, but sin eating. Uh -huh. I thought sin eating was like going and just eating like, 12 Jaffa cakes before bed right. without binge. anyone knowing. <laughs> like binge eating, yeah. 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 Uh, no, sin eating. Um, I won't go into it too much because obviously we want to talk about drinks, but it's also done with wine, so that's why I'll mention it. But it's essentially um, when somebody passed, um, you would actually call upon the kind of the local sin eater <laughs> who would come and essentially 
prepare a ritual. Um, they'd often put salt upon the breast of the deceased and other foods, and they would eat off them, and it would essentially be eating away their sins. Um, and this would then extend into wine. People would often, often sit at the foot of the bed where the deceased were and share wine, and they would drink away the sins. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be wrong to talk about funerals and booze in if we weren't to talk about the Merry Irish Wake. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did briefly mention earlier the religious tensions that were arising due to people lavishly honouring the dead. Um, but it wasn't just the church who wanted people to tone things down a bit. Um, in 1638, the town council of Kilkenny, uh, probably concerned about the potential for excessive drinking and disorder, specifically forbade the mayor to go to any wake to eat or drink on pain of £10. Though mourning is usually viewed as a sorrowful time, the Irish Merry Wake presented another aspect of the death ritual and included music, dancing, games, tricks, riddles, storytelling, and also lots of alcohol and food. Uh, The Catholic Church authorities continued to object to the provision of excessive hospitality at wakes throughout the 17th century. In 1660, it was ordered that immoderate drinking and feasting at wakes should stop, and they suggested that the greater part of the money involved should be given to alms and the poor or to be spent on the masses for the dead. Thereafter, clerical condemnation of wake hospitality seems to have focused particularly on the provision of alcoholic drink because of the risk of resulting drunken and unchristian behaviour. I'll get on to that. Uh, these attempts by the Catholic Church authorities to rid wakes of alcohol were clearly unsuccessful in many parts of the country. Clergy present at wakes were instructed to ensure that death was the uppermost in minds of those who attended. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> um, in a survey of County Kildare for the Dublin Philosophical Society in eight, uh, 1682, Thomas Monk noted that the lavishness of wakes, they have a table spread and served with the best that can be had at such time, and those present engage in eating, drinking, and revelling as if it was one of the feasts of Bacchus. Despite efforts by both church and council, these Bacchanals were held throughout the 18th and 19th century. In another survey, this time by the County of Cork for the Royal Dublin Society in 1810, the Protestant clergyman Horatio Townsend related that people's attachment to the custom was so strong that they even attended wakes of those who had died of infectious diseases. Mm. Plague, plague schmeg. <laughs> can have a party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, also, I like the idea that they were in some way bacchanals, as, as we know from uh, previous episodes. <laughs> if they were, yeah. if it was really bacchanalia, they'd be marching alongside the coffin with effigies to Priapus, which would have been quite a sight. <laughs> Don't, don't. From what I've read, I wouldn't come. I wouldn't cross it out. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned, the Catholic Church were aghast at the unchristian behaviour. Um, these merry wakes. Uh, there was an interesting mix of scandalous courtship involved in the proceedings. Um, so the wake games uh, often had overt sexual connotations. Uh, they were performed in the same space as the laid-out corpse as well, kind of juxtaposition, the, the finality of life with the period of sexual licence where mourners indulged in lewd amusements. Uh, many of the games were played by men and women and often included cross-dressing and complete nakedness. 
practices which persisted despite the advent of Christianity and the moral reforms that ensued. One lady, Maria Edgeworth, wrote in 1810 of the common practice of holding merry wakes in a barn. The wake took place in a barn or stable in the presence of the deceased, who was covered in a white sheet and laid out on a table. Pipes and tobacco were first distributed, and then, according to the ability of the deceased, cakes and ale, and sometimes whiskey are dealt to the company. After, fit, after a fit of universal sorrow and the comfort of a universal dram, the scandal of the neighbourhood, as in higher circles, occupies the company. The young lads and lasses romp with one another, and when the fathers and mothers are at last overcome with sleep and whisky, the youth become more enterprising and are frequently successful. It's said that more matches are made at wakes than weddings. Um, the exact origins of Irish wakes are unclear, um, either lost in time or forgotten completely, but it is widely believed that they were heavily influenced by paganism. Uh, and may also have originated with ancient Celts. The Celts believed in life after death and thought that when a person died, they then moved on to a better life. Therefore, they saw death only as a new beginning and treated it as a cause for celebration and festivities. Um, so it's easy to say, see how that influenced the Merry Irish Wake. However, there are those who think that the origins of the Irish Wake go back even further than that time. Um, some think that the earliest evidence of a wake can be found in the ancient Jewish custom of leaving the burial chamber open and unsealed for three days. This was done to ensure that the person in question was definitely dead <laughs> uh, before they closed it permanently. During those three days, family would visit the body repeatedly in the hope that it would return to life. Ultimately, though, they would pay their respects and say their goodbyes. Um... Some believe that the term wake originates from the practice of mourners keeping a watch or vigil over the body through the night. Uh, the body of the deceased was never left alone after, until after burial in case it falls prey to evil spirits and roaming demons. Uh, lit candles were placed closely around the body and clay pipes of tobacco and snuff were also smoked continuously by male attendees. Um, it's believed that the smoke would keep the demons away from stealing the soul. Um, and just to round it off, because I think it nicely comes full circle, uh, <laughs> there's one story which purports to explain the origins of the Irish wake. Uh, some say that both the tradition and the term wake in Ireland were born from incidents involving lead poisoning during ancient times. Uh, so long ago in Ireland, pewter tanks and cups were used to hold beer, stout, wine, other drinks... And we talked about poison and lead poisoning mm -hmm. quite a lot in our very, poison episode. Very popular in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is said that this uh, poison can induce drinkers into a catatonic sleep-type state, uh, which closely resemble death until they abruptly woke up a few days later. So in order to ensure that a person was actually dead and not just kind of poisoned <laughs> with lead... Uh, people would stand watch over a body for several days before they would bury it and wait for it to possibly reawaken. Um, we've th th it's probably myth, though, or just part of Irish uh, folklore, but I just thought that's a nice little full circle way to round off my bit on wakes. Yeah, thank you very much. I think mm. a lot of these things are actually very practical, um, you know, and the myth gets created around it to give a story as to why you should keep doing things, but 
Mm. It obviously makes sense to keep a watch over dead body because we do know from burial records that yeah. people were sometimes buried alive when in fact they were, you know, comatose in a death or, or, or whatever. So it makes sense to have built up a tradition where you wait a period of time to make sure that you stay guard over it. So, for example, it doesn't get attacked by animals or indeed, you know, grave robbed for whatever reason. And I think the smoking thing, as an example, is to cover the smell. You yeah. know, like they say, oh, it's evil, <laughs> evil spirits, but evil spirits being the stank of a rotting dead body. Um, <laughs> so I think there's always quite practical reasons around these uh, around these traditions, to be honest. I'm pretty um, sure I can always find an excuse for needing to drink at, at some point. Sure. I, I should write these rituals. <laughs> <laughs> you should write these rituals. Um, I've got um, I've got a very specific um example of uh, someone who was about to die and some of it is related to um, some drinks but it's not a request from him for a final drink are you do you know how charles the second king of england died i do not all right i feel like so you might tell me <laughs> i'm gonna tell you in quite a lot of detail um, <laughs> so it, the short version of it is that he probably got mercury poisoning because he was playing around with mercury in his lab, um, which probably led to kidney failure, which probably led to him having a fit. But that alone was probably not the cause of his death. Enter the uh, the medical notes. So, day one. On the morning of 2nd of February, 1685... Uh, things were going pretty normally. Charles was shaving and then he suddenly um, had a fit. The physicians rushed into the bedchamber to help him. Um, once the seizure had passed, the first thing they did was to let 16 ounces of blood from the king. Um, they were really into their bloodletting, but this goes to another level. Um, <laughs> as if that wasn't enough, they then applied heated cups to the king's skin so it formed blisters. They believed that would stimulate his system, and once the blister was lanced, the disease would go away. Um, as they burned him, they drained another eight ounces of blood. Once that uh, bleeding was finished, they gave him a drug to induce vomiting and an enema to purify his bowels and a, pur a purgative to clean out his intestines. So he believed that they were getting rid of all the disease from the, from the blood and the bowels and, and everywhere. That wasn't the end. They force fed him some sort of syrup containing blackthorn and rock salt. They shaved his head. They blistered his scalp, which caused the king to wake up again. Um, and you might think, OK, he's awake. That's a good sign. No, they gave him another enema just to make sure. They put an irritant powder up his nostrils, which blistered his skin even more. Um, they applied cowslip flowers to his stomach. I mean, who knows what that did? Um, and they applied pigeon droppings to his feet. That was 12 hours of care on day one. <laughs> day two. <laughs> um, he seemed improved on day two. And you might think, oh, okay, let's let's stop there and uh, be thankful. Uh, no. Um, they, uh, they put him through the gauntlet again, really. They um, began to bleed him again. Um, they didn't go for his arms and legs this time, which was the traditional. They went straight for the jugular. So... <laughs> They bled 10 ounces from from his jugular. Um, so by this point, he's lost 34 ounces of blood, thanks to the doctors. They then gave him another potion uh, containing black cherries, peony, lavender, sugar and crushed pearls. Um, and then apparently he slept for the rest of the day. Not surprised. He's lost a lot of blood. Bloody uh, 
day three he gets another seizure um and so they gave him some senna pods in spring water if you know senna make, makes you poop um and then some white wine with nutmeg <laughs> <laughs> that's the um, nicest thing he's had in three days <laughs> The white wine with nutmeg is definitely the nicest thing. It was um, much nicer than what he had to drink straight after that, which was um, a drink made from 40 drops of extract of human skull. Whoa. Which was taken from a, a man who had met a violent demise. <laughs> then they made him eat a gallstone from an East Indian goat. Um, <laughs> and then after all of that, they said, good news, after all of this, he is definitely going to survive. Of course. Day four, king, day four, the king is pretty no death. Um, so they apply hot cups to his skin again to form more blisters. They give him another enema um, and bleed him again. Um, How much blood they... has he got left at this point? <laughs> yeah, I know. He's like, it's a husk of a man just filled with like weird drinks. Um, they give him something called Jesuit's powder, which is a sort of quinine, opium and wine. Um <laughs> They give him a bit more opium to take the edge off. <laughs> this poor guy. Um, and then day five, uh, one of the uh, one of the doctors uh, writes on the morning of um, the fifth of February. Alas, after an ill-fated night, His Serene Majesty's strength seemed exhausted to such a degree that the whole assembly of physicians became despondent and lost hope. Um, what do you think they did to try and invigorate him at that point? Christ, I've stabbed him. I don't know. They, they, yeah, they, they bled him again, almost bloodless. <laughs> um, and then they thought, oh, do you know what? Maybe that's not ha ha helping. So they um, get this antidote, an extract of all the herbs and animals of the kingdom by scouring the palace grounds. And they mix it all up in ammonia and pour it down his throat. Day six. Oh my God. <laughs> um, this is his last day. He's he's very weak. He's in a lot of pain. Um, he says goodbye to all of his mistresses and children. <laughs> he asks for the curtains to be drawn, um, so that he can he can look over the Thames one last time. He says, "I have suffered much more than you can imagine. You must pardon me, gentlemen, for being the most unconscionable time at dying." And then he very quickly converts to Catholicism and then dies at the age of 54. What a week. I mean, what a week. The I'll next take... time I say I'm having a bad week, I will think about him. <laughs> Just think about this. <laughs> I'll take the champagne instead, thank you very much. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But is there any more death? Have you got any more death for us? I mean, I've got my last section here and I want to say I can lighten the mood, but <laughs> it's not great. <laughs> I'm going to talk about embalming fluid. <laughs> Yay. Can I drink um, it? Is that well, what you're about to tell it, me? It popped up a lot during my research. I hadn't planned to talk about it, but it was actually quite worrying to see just how many stories there are of people being poisoned by it, wow. either by chance or by choice. Um, it just seemed to be frequently mistaken for something you can drink, which seems baffling, really. Like, surely it a smell. Like... Mm. It must have had a kick to it, but anyway. Um, so let's kick off with embalming fluid in their beer. Subheading, mourners at a wake poisoned, one of them fatally. While attending an Irish wake last night, James Payton, James Callaghan and Mrs George Duven were poisoned by drinking embalming fluid. During the night refreshments were served and beer was poured into a tumbler which contained embalming fluid left by the undertaker. 
Peyton is not expected to recover. Chicago, 1888. Um, next one, headline, Funeral Drunk Fatal. Uh, this one's from 1908 in Washington. William McGuinness died a few days ago. The undertaker neglected to remove from the house a bottle of embalming fluid. Last night, McGuinness came home drunk. He mistook the fluid for liquor and drank it. Then he died. Full stop. Right. <laughs> this one, bit of a twist, not embalming fluid. No. <clears throat> uh, subheading, Moran drank whiskey at the wake and was not poisoned. Um, so, <laughs> this is from, let me get the date. I'm like, how is it, how, wait, how is this a story? Someone had some whiskey and wasn't poisoned. Yeah. Headline. Oh, wait, just you wait. This what? is proper, this is some Jeremy Kyle stuff, this. 1894 okay. in New York. Um, Mr. A.J. Downey of 350 Union Street, Brooklyn, this morning sent a certificate to Justice Teague in the Butler Street Police Court stating that Patrick Moran of 162 Walcott Street, who, it was supposed, would die from the effects of drinking an embalming fluid for whiskey at a wake, was suffering from alcoholism. Thomas Ryan and James White, who gave Moran a solution used to wash the face of the corpse as a joke, will now be released. They had been held until the doctor could determine if Moran had been poisoned. So wow. That's the news. So essentially, so many questions here. Like, did they think they were giving him embalming fluid? Because they'd mm-hmm. seen they'd seen it, be, you know, be used on the corpse's face. So they either thought, oh, this is embalming fluid, and they genuinely wanted to kill the guy, or did they just think, oh, it'll be hilarious to tell him that it's whiskey, and we're just going to pretend to wash his face with it and get him to drink it anyway. Mm-hmm. In which case, why did he drink it? There's so many questions. <laughs> What was going yeah. on? <sighs> so, on to the next sounds heading. Like, sounds like one for Midsummer Murders to me. <laughs> Another poisoning by embalming fluid in Union Falls yesterday. Um, Frank Wilds sold a cask of new cider to Winfield S. Dennett of Sacco. The latter's son, James, aged 19 years, drank a third of a glass of the cider. Dennett took a teaspoonful and his wife also tasted it. All of them were taken sick and the son died early this morning. Mrs. Dennett is very sick, but the physicians think she will recover. On the head of the cask was branded the word poison. The cask was purchased from a Bidford undertaker and originally contained embalming fluid. I mean, I think that's a bit dodgy that it was like, yes, son, you can have three quarters of a pint. I'll just have this teaspoon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I like that uh, we we very recently did two episodes on poisoning, and uh, you brought us a load more poisoning. We're slowly turning into a crime podcast. <laughs> two crime <laughs> one, one of the many crime podcasts. <laughs> uh, this one makes me laugh. Hard to kill is the headline. Subheading is a sensational incident at a wake in New York. New uh, New York, eighteen eighty eight. Last night, Rebecca Davis, 67 years old, was assisting at the ceremonies of waking the remains of a friend and a neighbour who had just died. The ceremonies began early in the evening, and as Rebecca endeavoured to assault her grief and her thirst in the liquid refreshments incidental to the occasion, she gradually became exhilarated. The body was being taken charge of by a friend who enjoyed some reputation as an undertaker and had just finished embalming the corpse, preparatory, 
preparatory removal for burial in a distant part of the country. He carelessly left a bottle of containing part of the embalming fluid on the mantelpiece. About 10 o'clock, Rebecca's glass was empty, and to join in a toast to the health of the survivors, she filled from it from the first bottle that came in handy. That bottle happened to be the one containing the leftover embalming liquid. In a very short time afterwards, Rebecca was seized with such pains that she began to think that she was undergoing the tortures of purgatory herself, and her wails persuaded her companions to investigate. When the truth became known, a policeman was called for assistance. He rang an alarm for an ambulance which caused consternation in the neighbourhood by dashing up to the house of mourning at full speed. A surgeon had a stomach pump soon brought Rebecca around, but if she had not been under the influence of alcohol at the time, she certainly would have been embalmed alive from the inside, for the liquor she drank was a very powerful and penetrating preparation with poisonous ingredients. So long story short, she was too pissed to kill herself with embalming fluid. Well wow. done, you. <laughs> Last but not yeah. least, I found one that is the kind of 19th century version of the sun. <laughs> uh, the headline is, Eight Candy, Now Insane. And it says, Sweet meats has been poisoned with saturation by embalming fluid. Mrs. Jacob Ikes, one of the women residing at Blue Knob, this county, who ate candy on Christmas Day, which had been saturated with embalming fluid through the carelessness of an undertaker, has gone crazy. It is thought she is now incurably deranged. Wow. And that's where I will leave off this jolly... (laughs) Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, I (laughs) I thought, you know, last orders, that'll be a nice kind of closing time, closing of the year kind of vibe. But we've leaned quite heavily into death, haven't we? Yeah, lots of death. Sunrise, sunset. Well, maybe we should end with a sing-along. Um, yes please instead that feel free to join in at home and uh and you too um the the phrase you don't have to go home but you can't stay here is the title of lots of songs i discovered or or featured within the lyrics and i thought i wonder where that phrase originates from and i found it really difficult to find a specific source but i didn't i did notice a, a cluster of mentions in newspapers in boston in the 1940s and I can't find anything from before then. So I don't know whether it comes from there or it's just like all we have on the information. But that's where the phrase seems to come from. Um, can you think of um, kind of famous closing closing drinks, end of the night, uh, not drinks, end of the night songs that generally get played in like bars or, or whatever when it's time? Yes. Um, always Oasis. It's always um is it Wonderwall? Wonderwall always gets played at the end of the night. Oh right. <laughs> um I, November I, Rain by Prince right. always gets I'm, played at the end I'm of the night. I'm thinking of songs that are specifically <laughs> to do with the theme rather than just like popular songs at the end. So I'm thinking something like Closing Time by Sammy Sonic. Ah, uh, you know I was one? gonna say My Way by Frank Sinatra was gonna no. be the last one. Closing, Closing Time. That one. Yeah. So okay. a lot of people, I know who I want to take me home. That one. 
So <laughs> yeah. a lot of people think that that is about leaving a bar at closing time, uh, which makes sense because that is very much what the lyrics imply. But apparently the, the drummer Jacob Slickter uh, said that it was written by by Wilson, um, the, the, the songwriter, in anticipation of fatherhood. Um, oh. And that it was, uh, they, they had like another song of theirs that was popular, I can't remember, uh, that they always used to play at the end. And they got sick of playing at the end, like, we need a new ending song. He was about to be uh, become a father and he says it's, this is the exact phrase, being sent forth from the womb as if by a bouncer clearing out a bar. Which is much grosser, I think, as an image than mm. just sort of saying... Yeah, it's about closing time at a bar. <laughs> sure. So you'll think of that one next time that comes on and everyone's like, oh yeah, I know who I want to take me home. You're going to think about someone getting kicked out of the womb by a bouncer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think another quite famous one is one for my baby and one more for the road. You know that one? No. Is it, was it just my rendition of it, or do you? Probably, yeah. <laughs> it's an old, it's an old a kind of jazz song, that a guy sitting at a bar drinking, um, and he's ordering, he keeps ordering one more drink. Um, so it was written by Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer for the, um, the film musical The Sky's the Limit in 1943. So it was first performed by Fred Astaire. Um, it's one of those songs, The Sky's the Limit was not, one of Fred Astaire's more popular because it was a bit more dramatic, like, you know, it, it, it featured kind of war fighting and stuff. Um, it's one of those romantic films, though, that's very creepy and stalkery by today's standards. You know, when you look at now and he's like, oh, I've fallen this in love with this woman, so I'm going to make up a false identity and move into the block that she lives in. It's that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, as part of this, he um, invites his friend to a nearby bar um, and it's it's revealed that, you know, his true identity, uh, Fred Astaire is asking his friend to keep it a secret. He proceeds to get drunk and sing this song um, while he's bar hopping and singing to various bartenders, uh, even tap dances on a bar table at one point, breaking lots of uh, glasses in the in the process. It is a good song. It's been covered many, 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 many times um, mm. since then. But uh, yeah, it is a classic sort of end of the night um, jazzy sort of song. Um, one I particularly like is by the Dropkick Murphys called Kiss Me I'm Shitfaced. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone and at home sing along if you know. <laughs> they're, they're great lyrics though, like once you, once you get into them, I'm going to read some to you so you can see kind of like what the vibe is. Um, <laughs> they sing, I can bench press a car, I'm an ex-football star with degrees from both Harvard and Yale. Girls just can't keep up, I'm a real love machine, I've had far better sex while in jail. <laughs> I've designed the Sears Tower, I make two grand an hour, I cook the world's best duck flambe. I'll take the pick of the litter, girls jockey for me, I don't need these lines to get laid. So kiss me, I'm shit-faced, I'm soaked, I'm soiled and brown, in the trousers she kissed me and I only bought her one round. Ah, uh, fuck it, who am I shitting? I'm a pitiful I'm a pitiful sight and I ain't all that bright. I'm definitely not chiseled from stone. I'm a cheat and a liar, no woman's desire. I'll probably die cold and alone. But just give me a chance, cause deep down inside, I swear I got a big heart of gold. I'm a monogamous man, no more one night stands. Come on, honey, let me take you home. Yes. <laughs> it's very, I recommend listen. Dropkick Murphy's always fun. Mm -hmm. They're sort of like a a Boston Irish folk party band. Um, in case you don't know. 
And, of course, I have to mention our theme tune song. Ah, show, show me, me the way to go, way to go home. home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. That one. So uh, I thought it was about time we mentioned that, seeing as we're yeah. closing 100 episodes. The So the music and lyrics of that are written in 1925 by Jimmy Campbell and Reg Connolly. And they they wrote this song. They tried to sell it to other publishers and other publishers didn't want it. They were like, nope. So they set up their own company um, in what is now a very famous, um, you know, like historical musical area of London, Denmark Street near Tottenham Court Road. Um, so they set up the publishing, they sold these, they sold two million copies. And that gave them kind of all the financial basis they need to set up their music publishing company. Um, they published it under the pseudonym Irving King. Um, and it's said that they wrote it on a train journey uh, from London. They were tired, they were travelling, they'd had a few boozy drinks. Um, hence the lyrics of, uh, of, I've had a few, I want to go to bed. Which you can empathise with if you've ever got the train back from Brighton to London. <laughs> um, they also wrote uh, Goodnight Sweethearts and Try a Little Tenderness. They were quite prolific, popular songwriters. Yeah. Mm. Um, there are two quite well-known, I think, um, films that feature this song, which has kept it in public consciousness. One was uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Brick is singing it sort of intermittently as he's coming home drunk. And the other one, which I think is the best one, is in Jaws. Yes. I don't know if you remember this, but when they're on the boat, yeah. on the orca at night, and they're just sort mm -hmm. of like essentially waiting to be attacked by a massive shark, they're kind of drinking and singing that song. And there's lots yeah. of parodies of that as a result as well. So I think it's kind of been kept around by that. Um, it's It was recorded by many different artists, you know, over the years, particularly from the 20s, you know, in the early days of the music hall and stuff, because it was a popular song. The one I wanted to put a spotlight on was Ella Shields. And Ella Shields was uh, American-born, but uh, lived and worked in, in London. And she was a male impersonator, or drag king, as we might know today. Um, so she began her career in 1898, doing vaudeville song and dance acts with her sisters. And then um, a talent scout kind of brought her to London. She was billed as the Southern Nightingale. And <laughs> in 1906, she married songwriter William Joseph Hargreaves in London. And she appeared at the opening night of the London Palladium in 1910. And the story goes that at one night in 1910, she was attending a party at which musical performers were doing their acts uh, for each other. But half of a two-man musical act was out sick, and so she filled in. She put on trousers, dressed up as the guy, filled in for the musical act. And that was like the turning point of her career. Everyone thought she did it brilliantly. That was just her act from then on. She never wore dresses on stage again. <laughs> um, her husband wrote a song for her to like do as a drag king act in 1915 which is pretty well known it's called burlington bertie from bow um, which is a, a comedy song about a penis, penniless londoner who's pretending to be a well-heeled gentleman which is a parody of an earlier song called burlington bertie um so ella shields worked with lots of people over the years including uh, a young julie andrews in the late 1940s um, she shared a bill with her on the royal command performance and 
Julie Andrews paid tribute to Ella Shields in her own one-woman show and recorded that song, Burlington Bertie from Bo. And it said that Julie Andrews took inspiration from her when she played Victor in the film and um, at film and stage musical Victor Victoria. So you can see that kind of straight through line from that, from all those things. In August 1952, Shields um, is in her 70s, I think, uh, performing in Northern England. And she goes on to sing her trademark song. Um, instead of singing, I'm Burlington Bertie, she sings, I was Burlington Bertie. And then straight after finishing the song, collapsed on stage and died. Hmm. Mic drop. Rad. Bloody hell. Yeah. Her body was cremated at Golders Green Crematorium. And uh, in the crematorium courtyard, she shares a memorial plaque with another music hall star called Nellie Wallace. But um, a very interesting character. And if you go on YouTube, type in Ella Shields, you can see stage recordings from like the late 20s and stuff of her performing uh, Burlington Bertie from Bo. And I highly recommend it because any excuse to see some drag kings from the 20s and 30s, uh, because they were much more prolific then than they are today. And it's, um, it's, it's a shame. So, yeah, mm. go and check that out. Ellie Shields. Right. Any last thoughts? None. Great. Gonna go and try not to kill myself with embalming fluid. Please do. So our glasses have run dry. Which means it's time to get out of my pub. <laughs> you ain't Cheers, my mother. everybody. You ain't my mother. Yes I am. <laughs> that was um that was an EastEnders reference. Don't get many of those on the podcast. <laughs> Go home. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home. Time at the bar, please. Time at the bar. It's just past 11. Use your discretion. Another 10 minutes to finish my drink. Despite our common perception that a second is always a second everywhere in the universe, the rate at which time flows depends upon where you are and how fast you are travelling. So, you know, five more minutes? Drink up, drink up, shoot back those whiskey sours. Chin it, chin it, chin it, I got work in seven hours. Drink up, drink up, I've been serving on my own. Chin it, chin it, chin it, I wanna go home. Another sip, we gave you a tip. You don't need to be a snitch. 
just past 11 Use your discretion Another 10 minutes to finish my drink, bitch Sorry, I didn't mean bitch Like, in a real sense, I meant bitch, please Like, hey girl, hey So, another 10 minutes Drink up, drink up, shoot back those whiskey sours. Chin and chin and chin it. I got work in seven hours. Drink up, drink up, I've been serving on my own. Chin and chin and chin it. I wanna go. Get out of my pub!